mysterious reaches of infinity, a gigantic astral body hurtles towards the Earth to terrorize and seal the doom of an unprepared mankind. How can we prevent it? A job for the Army. They've got the guided missiles, the nuclear warheads. Intercept and destroy it before it strikes. design, this death-dealing meteor plunges into the depths of the sea. And in its place emerges an awesome monster such as human eyes have never seen. I'm Captain Kirk. Ladies and gentlemen, may I present the winners the 74th Annual Hunger Games. We are the Men in Black. I'm the doctor, by the way. What's your name? Rose. Nice to meet you, Rose. Run for your life. My name is Optimus Prime. of war. Resistance is futile. Yes, a Jedi's trick flows from the Force, but beware of the dark side. What's happening, everybody? This is Mark Daniels from the Great Pacific Northwest, and you are listening to Treks and Sci-Fi, episode 463 for Sunday, November 17th, 2013. On this week's episode of Treks and Sci-Fi, I'll review another classic science fiction movie from the 1950s. This week, I'll take a look at the 1957 classic Cronus, starring Jeff Morrow, Barbara Lawrence, John Emery, and Morris Ancrum. Before we get into this week's movie, I'd like to thank Rico for giving me this opportunity to share with all of you another classic science fiction movie. I'd also like to thank everyone who took the time to listen to me today. I hope you enjoy it. With that said, I'm going to play the main title theme to this movie. I'll be back after the music with some movie information, and then we'll get into the movie.
Cronus was released April 3, 1957. It has a running time of 78 minutes. The production budget for this movie was $160,000. It was directed by Kurt Newman. It was based on a story written by Irving Block. The screenplay was written by Lawrence L. Goldman. It was produced by Irving Block, Louis DeWitt, Kurt Newman, and Jack Ribbon. The music was written and composed by Paul Saltell and Bert Schefter. It was distributed by 20th Century Fox. And here's the cast. Jeff Morrow as Dr. Leslie Gaskell. Barbara Lawrence as Vera Hunter. John Emery as Dr. Hubble Elliott. George O'Hanlon as Dr. Arnold Culver. Morris Ankrum as Dr. Albert Stern. John Parrish as General Perry. And Jose Gonzalez Gonzalez as Manuel Ramirez. The movie opens up in outer space. We see a saucer-shaped spaceship traveling through a star-filled sky. It hovers and stops, then releases a sphere of light which heads for the Earth. In the next scene, we see a lone man driving through the desert. The sphere of light causes radio interference and causes his truck engine to die. He pulls to the side of the road to check his engine. The sphere of light changes into energy and attacks him and takes control of him. The man gets back into his truck and drives to Lab Central, a government installation. He is stopped at the gate of Lab Central by a security guard. He tells the security guard he is lost and then knocks the guard out with a monkey wrench. He walks into the main building and enters Dr. Hubble Elliott's office. The alien presence that controls him jumps to Dr. Elliott and he falls to the floor dead. Now Dr. Elliott is possessed by the alien presence and in contact with the alien spaceship. Meanwhile, in another part of the lab, Dr. Arnold Culver retrieves from Susie, a supercomputer, the orbital computations of the asteroid M47. Dr. Leslie Gaskell and Dr. Arnold Culver take a look at M47 on the viewing plate connected to the observatory telescope. What are you doing here in the salt mines? Didn't you and Vera have a date to go to the movies? Leaving right away. I just dropped in to check on M47. Oh, here's the date on M47's orbit you asked me for. Susie just finished the job. Come on, Arnie. Take a look. They take pictures of the asteroid and head to the darkroom. They are met in the darkroom by Vera Hunter, Dr. Gaskill's love interest. Dr. Culver feeds more information into Susie. The computer malfunctions as Dr. Elliot walks into the room. Dr. Gaskill briefs Dr. Elliot on the orbit of M47. Susie isn't working, so Dr. Culver tells Dr. Gaskill and Vera to go see a movie. They walk to the parking lot, but before they leave, Dr. Gaskill frets over leaving work unresolved, and they return to the lab. Dr. Culver gets Susie up and running again. Doctors Gaskill and Culver meet with Dr. Elliot and provide him with information that M47 will strike to Earth in 16 hours. Dr. Gaskell suggests that the military use atomic missiles to destroy the asteroid. Diameter 4.9 miles, mass over 6,000 megatons, and speed of 1,750 miles per second. And destination, Earth. Well, we can only hope it burns itself out when it enters the atmosphere. With that mass, not a chance. Perhaps you're right. Perhaps I've underestimated both of you. That's not important now, sir. What is important is M-47 will strike the Earth within 16 hours. And it must not be permitted to strike at all. How can we prevent it? A job for the Army. They've got the guided missiles, the nuclear warheads. Intercept and destroy it before it strikes. 
The military arms and prepares the missiles for launch. Three missiles are fired at M47. Dr. Gaskell, Dr. Arnold, and Vera watch as the missiles strike M47. Dr. Elliot is eavesdropping at the door. He collapses to the floor as the missiles strike M47. Initially, it appears the missiles have destroyed the asteroid, but M47 reappears. Dr. Gaskell tells Dr. Culver to get Dr. Elliot. Dr. Culver finds Dr. Elliot unconscious in the doorway. Failure of the atomic missiles to explode the asteroid is still an unexplained mystery. General Miles reports other steps are being taken to cope with the emergency, but refuses to give details. The atomic warheads seem to have had an effect on the object, however, causing it to veer in its course. Unofficial estimates are that the asteroid will land somewhere on the North American continent, but no two experts agree exactly where that will be. Chances of the object striking a large city are remote. The mayor, the police commissioner of New York, urge all the people to stay where they are and not, I repeat, not give way to unfounded rumors. The asteroid is heading in the general direction of New York, but it is hoped that it will pass over without damage to the city. That unusual sound you hear is being given off by the approaching asteroid. Ladies and gentlemen, please stay tuned to this station. We will try to keep on the air. We understand that static from the uh, asteroid is, is interfering. We hope the danger will be over any second. The asteroid streaks across North America and crashes into the Pacific Ocean just off the coast of Mexico. Dr. Gaskill suggests to Dr. Culver and Vera that M47 needs to be investigated immediately. The people of North America breathe more easily today. By a providential chance, the giant body missed the heavy centers of population and plunged into the depths of the Pacific off the Mexican coast. Turn that Many churches off. are holding special services of thanksgiving for the deliverance from... Deliverance. Danger averted. What's the matter with them? Can't they see any farther than their noses? But several scientific institutions are already talking about plans to send expeditions to study it. Plans? Do you realize how long it takes a scientific expedition to get underway? I think I do. Months. Oh, but less the asteroid will stay put. How do we know it will? What are you talking about? Look, Arnie, you and I saw M47 swerve in its path, take a course impossible to explain by natural physical laws, didn't we? Yes, we did. Any mass ten times its size and density should have been pulverized by that atomic barrage, but it wasn't. Instead, it changed its path again, struck downward toward the Earth, like a wounded animal lashing out at its tormentor. Well, what does all this add up to? What, Les? Intelligence. Now, don't laugh. Maybe it's just a crazy hunch, but I got a feeling I'd like to go down there right now. To Mexico? What do you see? I don't know. Maybe nothing. Uh, what about Elliot? They'll have to give his approval, won't he? Well, right now, he's in no position to approve or disapprove. Ah, oh, but less if... Look, Arnie. What if it is an intelligent being of some sort from somewhere out there? Will it wait for our scientific expeditions to get underway six months, a year from now? Or will it make a move of its own before that? From under two miles of ocean? Why not? It came through a billion miles of space. Doctors Gaskell and Culver fly to Mexico to arrange for a helicopter to search for the asteroid. 
Dr. Culvert plots the location and Dr. Gaskell flies to it. Running low on fuel, they return to their base. Later that night, they get a surprise visit from Vera. She arrives with some supplies and chemicals. That Vera thanks our equipment and leaves out the chemicals. Is this what you're referring to, Dr. Gaskell? Vera. How did you get down here? Took a plane to Mazatlan, hired a jeep for the rest of the way. Wow. You know what I mean. Oh, I thought you might need these. Hmm. You hadn't been so careless. Careless like a fox. I didn't know what you're referring to, Dr. Culver. Never mind. Meanwhile, back at the hospital, Dr. Albert Stern and his nurse tend to Dr. Elliot in a hospital bed. Dr. Stern is recording Dr. Elliot's mutterings. Dr. Stern hooks Dr. Elliot up to an EEG machine. Later that evening, Dr. Gaskill expresses his feeling of dread. He thinks this is the calm before the storm. Dr. Gaskill and Vera decide to go for an evening swim. About the same time, Dr. Elliot wakes to a flashing light in his face. Out in the ocean, the asteroid is reacting. Dr. Stern sedates Dr. Elliot, but it has no effect as shown on the EEG. Vera and Dr. Gaskell are out of the water and on the beach when Vera notices something out in the ocean. Dr. Elliot is improving. Dr. Stern orders daily electroshock treatments. Dr. Elliot is himself, and he tries to convince Dr. Stern that he must listen and help him. Great improvement. Electroshock therapy daily until further orders. Yes, Doctor. Dr. Elliot, do you hear me? Yes, yes. I want you to rest quietly. You've been through quite a siege. And it's true. Dr. Elliot. It's not a dream. It you're, did happen. You're not yourself, Doctor. I myself, for the first time since... How long is it since? Dr. Elliot, I must insist. Nurse! No, no, you've got to listen to me. What is it, Doctor? A colon artery, hurry. Oh, for yes. God's sake, listen! I don't know how much time I may have. Oh, please, let me explain. You've got to help me. Help me. Doctor. Back in Mexico... A fog has rolled in, but the object can still be seen out in the ocean. The next morning, they wake to find a giant machine on the beach. It's a pair of black cubes connected by a silver cylinder. The legs consist of a series of cylinders. A sphere with two antennae are located on the top cube. Dr. Stern reviews the tapes of Dr. Elliot's session. He dictates his prognosis notes. He is amused that Dr. Elliot believes he's possessed by some aliens that live off of electrical and atomic energy. Further, they are running low on resources and are searching the universe for fresh supplies. Occasionally, I get these lucid moments. Yes, go on. Everything seems clear then? No. Now, that's just it. It's, it's clear and it's not. I know I'm doing something terribly wrong. During the period you can't remember? Yes, but... But I can't tell what it is. I just know that it's as if I'm not myself, but somebody else. Someone evil and dangerous. Someone who should not be allowed to live. You have impulses to do away with yourself? Not myself. But the other one. This force inside me. Have you ever tried to commit suicide, Dr. Elliot? 
What good would it do? He would live on, command the stars. What did you say? Command the... You don't believe me, do you? Of course I do, Dr. Elliot. No, you don't. You think I'm insane. I'm not insane. This is the truth. This is what's happening. You've got to believe me. May 23rd. Patient exhibits a marked paranoid syndrome with manic depressive effect. The clinical picture is a typical in that encephalogram readings are opposite to expected findings. The patient's alpha waves are violent during his lucid moments and read almost normal during his more violent seizures. Electroshock therapy seems to bring on patient's fantasies rather than to quiet them. Patient is convinced that he is possessed by a demon, an incubus, which dominates his actions and makes him carry out its will. Through this demon, he is telepathic, dominating at a distance the inhabitants of some undisclosed world who subsist on pure electrical or atomic energy. Finding their planet depleted, they are scourging the universe for fresh supplies. Dr. Gaskell, Dr. Culver, and Vera take the helicopter out to the machine. They land on the top of the machine. They take pictures and radiation readings. The machine activates and opens up. The machinery inside is revealed. They run back to their helicopter and fly away. Under shock therapy, Dr. Elliot's fantasies take on more detail. An energy storehouse or accumulator has landed on Earth and will suck the Earth dry of all electrical and atomic energy resources. Dr. Elliot enters Dr. Stern's office and demands the notes. Dr. Elliot threatens Dr. Stern. Now you're the only one who knows and you will never tell. Dr. Stern tries to get away, but Dr. Elliot catches him. They struggle, and Dr. Elliot electrocutes Dr. Stern with his own equipment. May 24th. Under continued shock treatment, the patient's fantasy takes on more detail. A great energy storehouse, or to use the patient's word, accumulator, has landed on this earth under the direction and control of his incubus. Unless stopped somehow, others will land and suck the earth dry of all electrical and atomic energy resources. Patient's cerebrospinal pressure has risen to 20 millimeters. His blood chemistry shows an abnormal consumption of energy. Ophthalmic examination shows marked abnormality. Electroencephalogram, still atypical. Doctor, what are you doing up? Give me that record. Well, these recordings are private, you know that. The things I told you must not be known. You mean... you? Impossible! Now, you're the only one that knows, and you will never tell. News reports from Mexico describe the machine as being 100 feet high and made of gleaming metal. Dr. Gaskell names the machine Cronus after a monster from Greek mythology. Dr. Elliot has been released from the hospital and returns to Lab Central. He reviews his notes on nuclear and thermonuclear sources. He can now tell Kronos where to get nuclear energy. He communicates with Kronos and it begins to walk to the nearest source of energy. 
Dr. Gaskill, Dr. Culver, and Vera monitor its movements from their helicopter as it approaches an electricity-generating station. The Mexican Air Force is deployed. The scientists are told to leave the area so the target can be destroyed. Cronus easily destroys the four P-51 Mustangs and continues on its way. Dr. Gaskill, Dr. Culver, and Vera return to Lab Central. Dr. Gaskill and Vera take the elevator down to the isolation chamber. It is shielded against cosmic rays. Dr. Elliot is in the chamber. He gets up and lets Dr. Gaskill and Vera inside. Dr. Gaskill asks Dr. Elliot about a newspaper headline. Lab Central Chief advises H-bomb for Cronus. Dr. Elliot, did you give this interview? That's right. They, they can't do it, don't you understand? They can't. The Pentagon has given the green light. Preparations are already underway. You haven't seen that monster, Dr. Elliot. Are you suggesting that anything in this universe can withstand a multiple thermonuclear attack? Doctor, you yourself have generated the heat of a dozen suns in the nuclear furnace on the other side of that wall. I tell you that Kronos has plates more impervious still. Not only can he withstand any force we're able to throw against him, but he will actually absorb that energy, become more powerful from it. Have you any proof of this, Gaskell? No, no positive proof. But I'm convinced that the giant sucks up energy like a sponge, feeds on it, is a walking storehouse of energy. And you propose to feed it the most concentrated dose of pure energy that man has ever been able to devise. Why did he choose a power plant in the first place? Who knows? A boulder rolling down a mountain doesn't know or care what it destroys in its path. You're falling into a trap, Doctor. If you think of this thing as blind, undirected, its very construction is proof of intelligence, of a degree of organization man may not realize on this earth for another thousand years, if man is still around. All right, Leslie. What would you do to stop this thing? I don't know yet, but at least we you must say, not... You have no positive plan. In the meantime, the giant is marching up the coast of Mexico. It's turned inland. We cannot wait till it reaches populated territory. We must hit it now. Later in the day, Vera is looking for Dr. Gaskell. She believes she is talking to Dr. Gaskell, but it is Dr. Elliot who is sitting with his back to Vera in the astrophysics lab. She blurts out, Les, there's something you should know. The Phoenix Hospital just called. And at that instant, Dr. Elliot, at that instant, Dr. Elliot turns around. Vera stops mid-sentence. She tries to escape, but Dr. Elliot catches her. She screams and Dr. Gaskell responds from another room. Dr. Elliot tries to electrocute Vera like he did Dr. Stearns at the hospital, but Dr. Gaskell stops him. Dr. Gaskell pushes him into an electrical panel and the voltage surge through his body returns Dr. Elliot to normal. Dr. Elliot explains the alien plan and Vera records it. You are right, Dr. Elliot. Listen. I don't know how much time I have. Gaskell, you must listen. Gaskell, here on Earth, we have learned only one half the nuclear secret. We can transform matter into energy. Up there, they have the other half. They transmute energy into matter. They have learned how to create the basic elements of matter, electrically and atomically. You mean like the experiments Hallard at Boston Tech has been conducting? But their planet has become depleted of energy. How can that be? What has happened to them may well happen here. 
if we continue using our resources at the present rate. Now they're sending down accumulators to find and store up new sources of energy. Life's blood. So that's how the giant grows. How can we ever stop it? I don't know. Reverse the process somehow. Cronus only the first. If he succeeds, more will come. Drain the earth of energy. Of every last bit of power. The bomb. Get me the Pentagon. Well, clear the line. This is an emergency. I don't care if the plane is on its way. Call it back. That bomb must not go off. The Air Force General orders the B-47 to return to base. The aircraft turns, but the controls have been hijacked by Cronus. Cronus steers the airplane toward it. Just before impact and detonation, Cronus tucks all components inside and sits as a black cube. The H-bomb detonates and the mushroom cloud follows. Dr. Elliot returns to the isolation chamber in the basement. He becomes ill and falls to the floor. The light flashes on his face and the liquid, like mercury, leaves his body and expands itself on the metal walls as sparking electricity. The H-bomb reverses as Cronus absorbs the energy. It grows larger, opens, and resumes its search for more energy. Dr. Culver, Dr. Gaskell, and Vera meet and review their notes. They review Dr. Elliot's recorded conversations with Dr. Stern. All right, let's go over it once more. Kronos was governed by a distant intelligence. Somehow fastened on Dr. Elliot. The records from the hospital all fall in line now. Right. Vera, run that uh, tape again, will you? Gasgill, you must listen. Here on Earth, we have learned only one half the nuclear secret. We can transform matter into energy. Up there, they have the other half. They transform energy into matter. Energy into matter? Anthropic conversion. How can we ever stop it? I don't know. Reverse the process somehow. Yes, but how? How in heaven's name? Oh, come on, old girl. I know I'm asking an awful lot. Please don't go into a nervous breakdown. Nervous breakdown? Yeah, Susie can stand just so much input. Then her feedback circuit overloads and jams and she goes into a regulatism. Wait. Couldn't we do that to Kronos? What do you mean? Apply the Attenberg theorem. Destroy the monster with his own energy. Set up a field of force. Here, a concentrated shower of omega particles. Matter derived from energy could cause change of polarity. The reversal process would trigger the conversion. Kronos' power to destroy would be turned upon himself. By setting up an internal chain reaction, Kronos would become his own executioner. Yes. Yes, thank you. I'll tell him. Think it'll work? It'll have to. Cronus is headed for the atom bomb stockpile at Wainimi. 
Dr. Culver, Dr. Gaskell, and Vera meet with General Perry. He has made arrangements to fly a rare radioactive nuclear material out from Boston Institute of Technology. The pilot sights Cronus. He has given instructions as to where to deploy the nuclear material. The location must be exact. Unfortunately, the wind changes and they abort the first mission. The weather station personnel calculate a new course. The pilot drops his load on Cronus and the reversal process starts. You've done it! What'll happen now? The chain reaction will keep on until the last stored electron of mass has been neutralized. Cronus is literally eating himself up alive. They're witnessing his death throes. I can get back to Susie and you two can go to the movies. Les, do you think they'll send any more down? If they do, they'll be ready for them. The movie ends with a long shot of a smoldering shell of Cronus. And that's the end of the movie. Now it's time for some movie trivia. The communication console and screen from Klaatu's saucer featured in The Day the Earth Stood Still can be seen directly in the background of Lab Central's Astrophysics Laboratory, M47, Dr. Leslie Gaskell's designation in the movie for the so-called asteroid. In real life, is one of the missing Messier objects, which correct position was not definitely identified until 1959, two years after the release of Cronus. It is an open star cluster in the constellation of Puppis. After a string of highly successful big-budget science fiction films throughout the 1960s, 20th Century Fox considered remaking this film in the early 1970s in response to the energy crisis. Baxter Ward, who played the TV news anchorman, was a real-life TV news reporter at the time. If you were over 50 years old, the voice of Dr. Culver sounds very familiar. Actor George O'Hanlon was the voice of George Jetson. And that's all I have for trivia. Here are my comments about the movie. I watched the 2000 DVD release from the Wade William collection. The sound and picture quality were pretty good. The story was excellent. You've got this civilization out there who live off of electrical and atomic energy. They have used all their resources. So they send out these probes. And these probes find planets with civilizations that use electricity and atomic energy and drains those civilizations dry. Then the accumulators go back to the home world and dump off the energy they collected. And that's how their civilization survives off other civilizations. So these aliens are bad aliens. And you got to admit, that's a great story. And just think, one of those accumulators are here on Earth. This is a classic science fiction Those in Hollywood couldn't write anything like this nowadays. One of the things (laughs) I find funny about the movie is Jeff Morrow. And I know some of those, some of you guys out there, I know some of you guys out there remember this island earth when he was Exeter in that movie. And the whole time I'm watching this movie, I'm thinking, wow, he's got a small forehead in this movie and his hair's not white. So that kind of distracted me, but just a little. John Emery, he played uh, Dr. Elliot. Man, he was really good. He played this part to the hill. And then I liked the light, the how they used the light on his face whenever he was possessed by the alien. The light would show on his face. That was very cool. It made me think about an episode of Star Trek when there was two Captain Kirks. And when the bad Captain Kirk, you would see him, they changed the lighting and the shadow. And, and Dr. I mean, Dr. Elliot's character in this movie reminded me a lot of that. 
I really like the look of Cronus. It's very it's very simple, but it's very cool looking. It looks something like it actually it looks like something right out of the Jetsons. Um, but it was very cool. I, I like the design of Cronus. Um, I wish it had better uh, special effects. I didn't really like the special effects in this movie. I mean, the Cronus prop, that was good, but there was way too much stock footage for me. I can't stand stock footage. Um, actually, this movie would be a good candidate to remake. I think if they remade this movie and did this right, I would definitely go see it in the movie theater. Besides those little nitpicks, this is a great movie to watch, and I would recommend this movie to all science fiction fans. I'll give this movie a 7.5 out of 10. Those are my comments about this movie. Before I end this week's podcast, I'd like to thank Rico again for giving me another opportunity to share with all of you another classic science fiction movie. I'd also like to thank everyone who took the time to listen to me today. I hope you enjoy it. Everyone take care. This is M5 signing off.